0: Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content. Marketing for a startup is hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing, and support all together so you can increase leads, fast-track deals, smooth out support, and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. Plus, they have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. HubSpot also offers discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform, and not the kind of discounts that barely make a dent. I'm talking about meaningful savings of up to 90%. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for Startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups.
1: For a long time, it felt like there was just no way for me to make music again. But I don't think that I would have gotten back to making music if it weren't for the fact that I talked to so many musicians about their process. And, and a big thing that people talked to me about that was kind of new for me was how collaborative they were.
0: Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. hello welcome back to another episode of creative elements you know i spent a lot of time this week exploring the question what would it look like to dedicate even more time to this show i have the time now and as the show becomes more popular it's also in my best interest to find new ways to make creative elements better and better it's a really rewarding and exciting place to be and i have a few ideas but i'd love to hear your ideas too are there certain guests that you want to hear from do you like hearing from more established creators or the up-and-comers? Do you like the solo episodes? What if I recorded video with my interviews? I'm super open to your thoughts and feedback, so just send me a message through the website at creativeelements.fm on Instagram or on Twitter. When I was first putting this show together, I made a list of guests that I'd love to interview on this show at some point. One of the first names that I put down, if not the first name, was Rishike Shearway and I'm so excited to share today's episode with the man himself. If you don't recognize Rishikesh's name, you may recognize his work. You're
1: listening to Song Exploder, where musicians take apart their songs and piece by piece tell the story of how they were made. My name is Rishikesh Hirway.
0: Song Exploder is part of Radiotopia, a network of independent podcasts, and it's probably my favorite podcast of all time. The episodes are usually 20 minutes or less, incredibly well-produced, and deconstruct one individual song per episode. It's this beautiful listening experience where you hear all the backstory of a song, the decisions and breakthroughs made in the creative process, isolated bits of vocals and instrumentation, and each episode ends by playing the song in its entirety. I thought it would be neat to have a show where where a musician could do a kind of show and tell of their work.
1: They could say, this is how I did it, and this is what it sounds like when you listen to it on its own. And then you get a different sense of the song than you would as a listener. Even as somebody who loved the song and listens to it many, many times, you just hear something different when you get to hear it that way.
0: It's an incredible show, and it's not just me saying that. It was named Best of iTunes in 2015. It was called Probably the Best Use of the Podcast Format Ever by Vulture, and Quartz called it Possibly the Most Perfect Podcast. Over the years, he's interviewed Billie Eilish, U2, Metallica, Fleetwood Mac, Sheryl Crow, and many, many more. And the format has stayed remarkably consistent since 2013 when Rishikesh conducted his first interview.
1: In March of 2013, the Postal Service was just getting ready to do their 10th anniversary tour of their, their first album. Well, their only album. And my friend Jimmy Tamborello is in that band. He, he makes music as Dentel, and he's half of the Postal Service. And he and I had gone on tour in 2011, and so I asked him if he would let me come interview him, knowing that he was working on these songs that this anniversary was coming up, and he said yeah. The Postal Service was formed by Jimmy Tamborello and Ben Gibbard in 2002. They lived in different cities and would mail recordings back and forth between Seattle and Los Angeles. They only made one record, Give Up, but it sold over a million copies. It's considered a landmark album for the way it combined indie rock and electronic elements. In this episode, Jimmy Tamborello breaks down the Postal Service song, The District Sleeps Alone Tonight.
0: And the rest is kind of history. The show has been running since 2014. In 2020, the show expanded into an eight-episode Netflix series, interviewing guests including Lin-Manuel Miranda, Alicia Keys, R.E.M., Dua Lipa, and Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. That television series is one of the most impressive pieces of media that I've ever seen. Not only are the interviews and song deconstructions incredible, but they used animation and illustration in this incredibly complimentary way. If you haven't watched it, please take some time this week to check it out. I promise it will be well worth it. But before all of this, before Song Exploder, Rishikesh was a full-time musician.
1: The first thing that I ever put out, like the first CD I ever put out was a band that I played drums in and, and sang and, and wrote songs. But the 1AM radio was the thing that I, I started doing when I was a senior in college and continued you know, for another 12 years after that. Well, really, it basically continued up until a couple months ago when I put out new music. And for the first time, instead of putting it out under the 1AM radio, I put it out under my own name. you called out my name
2: bring me some water my love and it all felt the same
0: as any other night of my life so in this episode we talk about rishikesh's journey as a musician how his failed expectations for an album led to starting Song Exploder, how he landed a series on Netflix, and how his willfulness helped him rediscover his passion for creating his own music. And in true Song Exploder fashion, at the end of this episode, I'll play Rishikesh's newest song, Home, in its entirety. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter at jklaus or on Instagram at creativeelements.fm. Tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening. And now... Let's talk to Rishi Cage. I started playing music
1: when I was a kid. It was only really after I graduated from college that I think I had this thought that I want to be a musician professionally. Not because my interest in it had changed. In college, I was very serious about music. It was basically the thing that I unofficially majored in, you know, it was playing shows and being in a band and put, putting out records. It was the, my friends and I started a record label and I tried to do it to the, I guess, the most serious degree I could, but I did not know a single person who did that as a job. I didn't know what that would even be like. There were bands that I loved that had careers, but it felt like something I couldn't really fathom, you know, there, there was some opaque wall between that thing that I enjoyed and then something that I could do myself. And it was only after I had finished school and had started work and, and started touring, you know, in that context where I took time off of my job and, and, and went out for a few weeks. I came back from, from a tour early on. And, and after that, I was like, okay, no, I could see this could be my job maybe, or at least I would like it like it to be. So what can I do to try and make that uh, happen? That was when the, the sort of ratio switched in my head. Only in my head, I went from saying, oh, I'm going to have a job and I will do music where I can, to music is my job and I will do whatever I need to where
0: I have to in order to make that a reality. Oh, what a great reframe. And that applies to so many people with their, their passion projects. I love that. Yeah. Even though... It,
1: <laughs> The next day, nothing had changed, and I still had to go to my job and do as much work. And, you know, I had enough, the same amount of room for music in my life. It was just a mental
0: switch. And I basically haven't looked back from there. So, when you were in the band and when you made this mental switch, did you assume that it was going to be a future with that band, with those people? Well, so band is maybe a misnomer.
1: It was a project called the 1AM Radio, but it was just me. It's like a solo project. And sometimes other people would come and play with me, accompanying me on different instruments. But it was, it was my
0: project. Well, talk to me about this decision to start the 1AM Radio, because I would imagine like in the dynamic of a band, if you want to take this seriously as your job, you're also like signing up those people to have the same aspiration, which is just so tough, right? Is that, is that part right. of what drove you to doing the, the solo act?
1: Well, I was doing the solo thing in college already, but it was, even though it wasn't in a professional context, there was some element of like imagining it as something that I didn't have to obligate anyone else into. You know, I I could just play a show when I wanted to play a show, go make a record the way I wanted to make a record. It just felt like there was some more freedom, but also the music that I was making was, you know solo music basically. I was I was playing guitar and and singing. And that was what the most of it was based around. There were some other like electronic elements and things here and there. But really at its core it was like a singer-songwriter project. So it kind of worked out where like the form and the function kind of were married for it to just be me.
0: What are some of the trade-offs that you have to make to go from full band to solo act where in the recorded version you're doing different instrumentation. Like I'm assuming you have some tracks where you're doing drums too. Right. Yeah. And you can't do all these things simultaneously on stage as one individual, right? So, what are some of the other things that are like the trade offs of doing a one man show? Well, I realized that I had to just think of these two
1: versions of the music separately, that there was a recording that I would make, and then there was a live version. So many times with a band, you know, a recording is a faithful capture of what they sound like when they play a song. But I got really interested in music that was, you know, outside of the world of live music. A lot of music that where I just was like, I don't know what that sound is. I don't know how they're doing it. It's clearly not something that like any real instrument is making. Um, And I got into a lot of electronic music. You know, I I fell in love with uh, DJ Shadows' record introducing when I was in high school and Portishead, and there were all all these artists then that. I got excited about where it felt like the studio or not that it was a studio for me, it was a bedroom, but you know, but like the world of recording was where the song kind of got created. And then when you go to play it live, it's more like a, you're kind
0: of doing a cover version of your own song. Mm. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way of like covering your own music performance is really interesting. I've been thinking about just like the act of performance a lot more recently, uh, music, obviously one form of it, but even like going on a zoom call and being like, this is what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And this is who I need to be on this call. Like performance is such an interesting mode to step into and even design for. And I don't think a lot of people like design for the performative versions of their thing.
1: No, I think they're completely different abilities and instincts. Honestly, performance is not one of my strong suits. I think of myself as uh, being sort of an editor more instinctively than a performer. So that might be why I, well, I know that's why I really enjoy the act of making the song in the recorded version, because you can just sort of futz around with things, change things, reimagine it until you feel like you've gotten it right. Whereas in a live performance, it's just, it's happening. It's happening now. And now it's over. And that's what it was. And some people really thrive in that
0: context and really crave it. But that's not me. If someone forces you into a corner and says, like, tell me what you are. Do you think of yourself as a podcaster, as a producer, as an artist? I would say I'm a musician. Love that. And has that been the case since you made that reframe in your mind of this is what I'm going to be doing full time? Yeah, even even before that reframe, that's how I thought of myself was I'm a musician.
1: And um, I, I just didn't know in what kind of capacity or how legitimately I was that. And then I was like, okay, no, this is what I'm gonna do for my living. This is what I wanna be. And yeah, since then, that's how I've thought of myself. I do a lot of other things, but, but I think if I had to pick a core identity,
0: that's what I would say. What does like the makeup of your time these days look like?
1: Well, right now I'm working on a few different podcasts. I have the Song Exploder podcast um, that I've been doing since 2014, and that is constantly running. It's basically an episode every two weeks. So I'm always in some stage of pre-production or production on at least one or two and sometimes three episodes of that show. And then I'm also working on another podcast called Partners. I'm working on a second season of, of that show. The first season came out last year and i have this patreon project that i just started with my old western weekly podcast co-host so at the moment during the week i kind of have been dividing my time kind of haphazardly between between all those things and then fridays i put all of those aside and
0: i just work on music is that so in your mind are they all like a relatively equal dedication of time when they need it or is there one that's like an outlier of this is way more time or way less time
1: well i think song exploder probably takes the most time just because it's always there because it's constant and then the other ones kind of uh spike and ebb and flow depending on what attention they need right now partners is um taking up a bunch of time just because I'm in the midst of editing. I've done a bunch of the interviews already, and now I have to turn those interviews into episodes. Um, but I also still have one more episode to record, you know, so there's, that's another one where there's pre-production production kind of all happening at the same time. I'm a bit of a procrastinator. So usually it's the thing that where the deadline is <laughs>
0: fastest approaching, that's the one that is getting <laughs> the most attention. Relatable. After a quick break, we dive right into the history of Song Exploder and how it became the hit that it is today. And later, we dig into how the podcast became a television series on Netflix. So stick around and we'll be right back. D2C Pod, hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. D2C Pod is a podcast about all things direct to consumer. Ramon and Blaine cover everything for starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. They talk with founders, marketers, and creators and cover topics like brand building, social media, influencer marketing, website conversion, paid media, consumer trends, email marketing, and more. So if you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot slash J and let them know that I sent you. Welcome back to my conversation with Rishikesh Sherway. Before the break, Rishikesh told us that after college, he was focused on music full-time, but things weren't exactly going to plan and he began to explore other ideas. In January 2013,
1: I was thinking, okay, it's a new year. And at that time, I was about two years out from the last album that I had released as the 1AM Radio. That was my fourth album. And I had a lot of hopes for that album. I, I was really, or expectations, I guess. You know, I, I was trying to do something, you know, it had more of a budget than any record I'd ever done before. The first couple of records I had made were entirely on my own in my bedroom. There was no budget. It was just my time, basically, but this was one that was more ambitious. And I was, I guess, I had expectations because of how ambitious the record was. And I felt like what happened, the results of those records, didn't really live up to those expectations. And so I thought, okay, I need to take a break from this for a second. I can't just jump right back into trying to make the next record because I don't wanna fall into the same thing. It had taken me three and a half years to make that record. And, you know, I don't make records quickly. i had made four records between 2001 and 2011. So I was a little nervous about getting back into it. The other thing that I was trying to do, the other reason why I moved to LA was because I also wanted to score films. And in 2013, I had scored one film um, that had gone to Sundance and I had scored a second film that was about to go to South by Southwest. And I was like, okay, maybe this is what my trajectory is going to turn towards. I'm going to start doing more film scoring. Um, I still wanted to make music as the 1M radio and all that, but I just, I felt like this was a year where I needed to figure things out because uh, I didn't want to just keep going forward the way I had. So I made a decision. I was going to open myself up to new ideas in a way that I hadn't in the past decade. I had really felt like I had to be relentless about my life as a musician and pursuing this goal you know, relentlessly because I didn't know how to do it. I had to figure everything out myself and no one was really gonna help me. So I I always felt like I could never be distracted from it. You know, my my parents were like, why don't you try going to grad school? Why don't you do you know, and and I was like, No, I I cannot take that time off. I have to just keep trying to make it. So in twenty thirteen I thought, okay, well maybe I'll I'll try some ideas that I've been kicking around in my head. Maybe I'll try something different. And there were a bunch of different things that that kind of opened up that year once i opened the door to doing something other than just the one am radio i sold a pilot for a tv show and i started a new band you know it was a hip-hop project that i was the producer in and i started song exploder in a pilot form it was called deconstructed it had a different different name so the concept for the show in my head before i went to do this interview was i think there should be a podcast where musicians get to share the isolated parts of their work because it's something that defines for me how I make music. You know, I have to turn everything off except for this one element and figure out what's the mix for this going to be, or what's the right sound, or what's the right combination of sounds for, you know, say just the drums, or how am I going to mix these two guitar parts, both musically and sonically and things like that. When you're doing that, You figure out things about the song that are working and how that works with the other pieces of the song. But that's a part of the process that's kind of hidden from most people. And hearing a song in that way is also hidden from listeners. So in March of 2013, I went and recorded the first interview for the show.
0: Hi, my name is Jimmy Tamborello from the Postal Service. Postal Service was a project that I did back in 2002, 2003. Uh, with a friend, Ben Gibbard, who is also the singer for Death Cab for Cutie.
1: I went over to his house where he was getting ready for the tour. He had all sort of the disassembled pieces of the song. He was trying to figure out how to turn it into what their live version of the song was going to be. So he had like samples from the songs things like that.
0: So if I solo just the drums, this is what, what it sounds like. In addition to me and Ben, we also had Jen Wood and Jenny Lewis do some, uh, some additional vocals on the record.
2: I am a visitor here. I am not permanent where I
1: am. So I asked him how he made it and what the story of that song was, and he played me things on his computer. And then I took the different samples that he played me and I took the hour long interview that we did. And I went home and I tried to edit it into something and, and came up with,
0: you know, an 11 minute episode that I called the pilot episode of Deconstructed. I remember, I think it was probably close to 2014, maybe like 2015, 2016, when somebody told me about Song Explorer the first time. And Mm -hmm. I looked at the episodes and I thought, I don't know any of this music. I'm not going to listen. And then I did it anyway and what I figured out was by listening to a song and an artist talk about it, even if you hadn't heard of that song or that artist, it builds a deeper appreciation for both. Like It got me interested in new music because of that and it was just this magical thing. So you you had this concept and it sounds like the concept has been pretty much rock solid for the history of the show, but you talked to Jimmy Tomarello in March of 2013 and yeah. I think you released that episode in January of 2014. So talk to me about the Mm -hmm. 10 months in between. One of the other things that was happening at that time
1: was (laughs) I had now become a full-time musician. That was my job. Since about 2007 or so, I was making my living from music. But doing that puts a different kind of pressure on on the way that I worked. I had to think about... (laughs) This thing that I'd gotten into because of loving it, because of a creative passion for it, I had to think about it now as a source of income and and you know as a as a business strategy. And I think that was that was part of where the ambition behind that record came from. And part of its ambition was to make something that could potentially give you know make my career bigger, but also like let me make a living in a more comfortable way and so part of that disappointment was also the idea that was like, okay, well, it didn't really happen. I, you know, there were a few things that happened that were nice and, but it didn't feel, the main thing was it didn't feel sustainable. You know, I had some songs in TV shows. I had some song, you know, some songs in like commercials and things like that. And when those happen, they feel like windfalls and they can, and I'm very good at living very frugally. And I have, you know, for years, that's how I basically made it work as a, musician. And so I could stretch a moment like that out into many months of, of month to month living. But it was so unstable and so scary at times that I felt like, okay, something needs to change. And it wasn't even that I was like, oh, I, I'm trying to be rich or something like that. Just, I just wanted some sense of security that, okay, in the next three months, I will be able to pay my bills for three months, as opposed to, I can this month and next month. And then the month after that, who knows could be, there was just kind of a feast or famine kind of um, feeling. Well, not even a feast. It was more like, you know, a meal or no no meal. (laughs) (laughs) So part of the impetus for song exploder was also wanting to create a stable income for myself out of something that I knew how to do and something that I would enjoy. And I thought this could be a show that I could make and I could maybe pitch it as like branded content. I wasn't even thinking of the term podcast at, at that point. I only listened to a couple of podcasts, but you know, branded content was a phrase that was in my world uh, somewhat, mostly about video stuff. But I thought here's something where um, I could imagine some brand saying, yeah, we, w- we want to put this out. We want to put our name on it and we want to publish it. And I could make it and they would pay me for it. So that was the idea. And so in between March and January, that was kind of my hustle. I was, I was going around looking for someone who would want to, who would want to pick the show up basically as, as some kind of series that they would pay for. And I could make it you know, semi-regularly and have a day job again that I do part-time that sustains things while buffering, you know, while, while protecting me from the
0: vicissitudes of a musician's life living. And so interesting. I had no idea how intertwined the podcast and your musician career at this period was. So I'm going to kind of ping pong back and forth here. When you say you were making a living as a musician, help me expand my understanding of the avenues that you can make a living as a musician. Sounds like you were doing some music licensing to TV shows, commercials. Was that Mm -hmm. primarily where that income was coming from? That was where some
1: income came from, but then also touring. I was, you know, I, toured a bunch, and I'd gotten to the point where touring was no longer a money-losing proposition. And I also, uh, I produced some records for for other artists, and I would do remixes and things like that. And then you sell merch and records and stuff like that. So th- there's a few different ways of, of making income. And there are m- other ways beyond that as well, but those were the ones that I was sort of pursuing in 2011, 2012. And they were kind of few and far between in terms of the opportunities. What it felt like to me was I was just trying to have an existence in the sort of like middle class or like lower middle class uh, musicians, uh, something that felt like a sustainable living. And it was just too unpredictable to to have that, to, to you know, even to just to guarantee, you know, okay, I'm going to, I know I'm going to make, you know, $30,000, as my salary, I'll be able to pay my taxes and pay my rent and all that stuff.
0: And were you on a label at this time? Because you mentioned that this, this third album had more of a budget than the first two. Did that come from another entity or did that come from like the proceeds of touring? Yeah.
1: So this is actually my fourth, fourth album in 2011. And that album and the previous album had both been on a label. So they, you know, they gave me an advance for the record, but then it's recoupable against that advance. And the advance is really mostly to cover the cost of recording the the album. It's not really something you could live on or at least not in my situation. So, yeah, I had to try and be a little bit inventive about ways to to make money around that while still having enough room to be a musician all the time. And I didn't quite hadn't quite figured it out and you know, in the age of streaming. And in that those days, you know, it was kind of a different era of streaming than we are in now, but it was post-Napster. And essentially a band of the level of popularity or an artist of the level of popularity that I was at, you know, maybe 15 years ago could have made a modest living, could have been like, yeah, this is what I do. And this is how I pay my bills. But, um, but CD sales had just sort of bottomed out. And so the equivalent size artist, you know, that I was at, meant like, yeah, who knows? <laughs> you might get lucky with a, with a TV license and be okay for the next couple of months or you might not.
0: It sounds like it could be so frustrating. I, I talked to a lot of creators who like they found some level of success where it's like encouraging, like this is, this is going to work, but then they kind of like feel stuck there for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, but what gets me to the next step? Like what is the next right thing for me to do? Were you in a zone kind of like that? You know,
1: with all of the albums that i was putting out i did try and feel like okay what's the next step how do i get to the next level but one of the things that became clear was just how little control i had over my own destiny in that way i mean creatively i could try and make the best record and do better as an artist uh, from from record to record and year to year but there was no guarantee that that would translate into anything pragmatically or practically or financially. So I was looking for a way to take a little bit of control of my own, you know, ability to pay rent, but do it in a way that still felt like it was fulfilling or interesting to me and still connected to all the things that I did. And I, I liked the idea of like making something myself as opposed to going out and trying to get a job where, where if I had to go to an office every day, it might limit the possibility of when I did have a song that I wanted to work on or something like that, would I be able to go and get into the studio or, you know, which is just in my house, but like go sit down and and write a song or something like that. I wanted to be able to have the flexibility of something that was my own.
0: When we come back, we talk about a couple of big breaks that helped Song Exploder take off and how he pushed beyond his comfort zone to bring the show to Netflix right after this. If you work with clients and you want to grow your top line revenue without growing a big payroll at the same time, then consider attending the Solopreneur Summit, a VIP event hosted by my friend Ken Yarmish. Ken has personally closed over $50 million in his career as a solopreneur, all in professional services. I've learned a lot from Ken and he's worked with some of the biggest names today. People like Matt Barker, Nasheen Chen, Laura Acosta, and Jake Ward trust Ken to get clearer offers and scale their business with systems. Now, Ken is running a two-day in-person summit on May 9th and 10th to help you build systems across marketing, sales, and client delivery. So now you too can grow without hiring. This will be a workshop setting. It's the anti-loud obnoxious conference with no more than 50 people Who will go deep with Ken and other experts that he's brought in to solve actual problems in your business? Ken and his invited experts will show you their proven systems across personal branding, driving inbound leads, social selling, crafting scalable offers, using AI to automate client delivery, and more. Stop guessing and start learning from those who are three to five steps ahead of you. Get actionable tactics and proven systems to accelerate your pipeline, close more deals, and get out of client delivery hell. Head to trs.club slash summit to learn more and register for the Solopreneur Summit today. At that website, you'll see some of the other experts that are coming in that will allow you to go behind the scenes and look at their actual businesses. Again, that URL is trs.club slash summit. One last time, that's trs.club slash summit. You may or may not know that I have a bit of a domain buying obsession. Whether it's a new project idea or domains related to my existing projects, I'm buying them all. I have creatorscience.tv, creatorscience.fm. So let me tell you about my newest purchase. It's jklaus.bio. Connection with your audience is everything. We make all this content, and then we want to direct our audience somewhere. Well, a great new option is with a .bio domain. Instead of some long link tree or third-party URL that people can't understand and it's hard to say out loud. Using your .bio domain for your link in bio lets you manage all your links in one spot with a custom domain that tells people exactly who you are. It's short, it's memorable, it's professional. Your .bio domain name is your way to share yourself with the world. And right now, you can get your own .bio domain name for less than $3 at PorkBun. Yes, that's a real website and a real registrar. Just visit porkbun.com creator. That's porkbu dot creator. Let me tell you about one of my favorite podcasts that I've been listening to for years. It's called The $100 MBA Show. And wherever you are on your business journey, The $100 MBA Show has lessons that can help you take the next step forward. The $100 MBA Show is a Best of Apple Podcasts winner, literally one of the top Apple Podcasts of all time. And it's hosted by my friend and former guest, Omar Zenholm. Omar is a business school dropout turned successful entrepreneur And he shares real-world lessons on starting, growing, and scaling your business. You may even know his software product, Webinar Ninja. What I love about the $100 MBA show is that these are well-produced, bite-sized episodes on everything from creating a product, connecting with your market, sales, building a team, and more. This show is legit. It does over 2 million downloads every month. Whether you're a small-time solopreneur or scaling your startup to investor level, there's valuable real-world advice for you in the $100 MBAs archive of thousands of episodes with new episodes three days a week. If that sounds interesting to you, and it should, just search for $100 MBA show wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back. Before the break, Rishi Rishikesh told us about his original vision for the podcast, which he called Deconstructed. He thought the show might be able to be successful as branded content, but that wasn't really playing out either.
1: Well, it was pretty much nine months of being told no (laughs) and refusing to let go of the idea that I thought it was going to be viable. A lot of places at that time just weren't interested in audio. Nowadays, I feel like so many brands are putting money into podcasts and, and starting their own podcasts and things like that. But back then, it definitely was not the case. But I felt like there was a show that people would find interesting if I could, if I could just put it out regularly. So I made a decision that I was going to do it for a year, and I would, I would put out one episode every two weeks for a year. And then at the end of that year, if nothing came of it, if it didn't feel like it was going to do the thing um, that I wanted it to do, then I would just wrap it up, and and it would be an experiment, and it would be an interesting experiment, and that's it. So that was how I set out uh, to just, just do it as a podcast without some you know some patron <laughs> backing it.
0: And did it take the end of that full year for you to say like, yep, definitely something here or did something happen along the way?
1: What happened was in June of that year, there's another podcast, 99% Invisible. And Roman Mars, who makes that podcast, he asked me if he could run a, an episode of Song Exploder one week while they were having, uh, uh, they would normally run a rerun. They were ta- they were going to go on break, and he said, "You know, could we do an episode of Song Exploder instead?" And uh, he's like, "This will be a way for me to introduce your show to our audience, and his audience is huge." Yeah, wow. <laughs> um So I said, "Yeah, that would be fantastic." And he did a little interview with me. We talked a little bit about the making of that first episode and and what the concept of Song Exploder was, and then he played an episode one of his favorite episodes at that point there were only you know 12 episodes but he played one of his favorite episodes which was about the theme song uh, for the tv show house of cards and then from that my audience basically tripled after that and in that bigger audience i started to get some interest from from uh people including a guy who was a uh booking agent and he mostly worked with bands but he was starting to do stuff with podcasts And he was like would you ever want to do like a live version of song exploder i I could not really imagine what that would be like because it's a show that is so heavily reliant on editing and post-production that uh i couldn't really figure out what a live thing would be so i kind of brushed him off a little bit and then i got an invitation to um do something live at a festival you know he was sort of presenting me with the idea kind of generally. And then it came in the form of something very specific, which was to do something at the XOXO festival in Portland. So then I went back to, to Andrew, the booking agent who I had talked to. And I said, well, here's a specific opportunity. Do you think this is something I should do? And he's like, yeah, this is exactly the kind of thing. And I asked, I asked Roman Mars, you know, for, for some advice, like what, what is this going to be? And he's like, just try it. And if you never, if you don't like it and you never want to do it again, you don't have to. So that's that's what I did, and at that festival, there were some sponsors of the festival. One of them approached me and they said, oh, you know, we are such big fans of Song Exploder. I said, oh, that's so cool I, that you know what the podcast is. And they're like, yeah, we're really looking forward to your show, and I was like, oh, great. And then they asked, you know, then they basically, they said that they would come on as a sponsor of the podcast, so they were my first sponsor. Um, and that was Hover, the like domain registrar. So they became my, my first uh, my first sponsor, and that was and the that was in September. The first time like the ad actually went on the show was in October. So I was two months before you know before hitting the deadline, and then by the time December rolled around, that had grown to I, I think there were three sponsors, and suddenly it seemed like this could be something that could actually help. Pay the bills if i if I could hold on to that, so I said, okay,' it's,
0: my year is up. I'm going to keep going. When did Radiotopia enter the picture? I know that's a collaboration with Roman Mars also. I joined Radiotopia in
1: June of two thousand and fifteen. They were bringing on a few few new shows, and they asked if I would join. I, I talked to them and a few other podcast networks around that time, but Roman put it in terms of a music metaphor that really I um, felt extremely targeted by <laughs> in a good way. Um, he said that Radiotopia he wanted it to be like the Discord Records of podcasts, and Discord Records is the record label that was founded by Ian MacKay and like put out Fugazi and Minor Threat, all these sort of DC punk records roman is a dc punk and i was a guy who had grown up listening to that all that music and i guess this might be worth mentioning that kind of diy ethic is something that my friends and i had embraced when we were in college starting our record label for the first time and when it came time to like book shows for the first time when i was going on tour you know i didn't didn't work with an agent we didn't have we we just did everything ourselves and it was from hearing stories and reading the manifestos of these like punk labels that that did everything themselves and it was honestly part of what made doing song exploder at the beginning feel like a feasible project you know without any kind of backing i was like well i know what this is like i know what it means to just sort of self-release something and put it out there and 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 hope for the best this was a new way of doing it but i was used to the feeling for me so when Roman said, Oh, <laughs> this is the Discord records of podcasts, I was like, Oh, you're really, you're really speaking my language. And I think he knew that. So, so I said, Yes, because one of the things that they embrace is the idea that everybody on that network owns their own show. They are not a corporation. They're, they're a nonprofit. And all of the podcast creators still own their own shows. It's just we're just sort of coming together for some shared resources
0: and shared wisdom and that really appealed to me. So you joined Radiotopia. Are there any other major inflection points that stand out to you up before the Netflix series?
1: So around that same time, when I joined Radiotopia, that was June of, of 2015, I put out an episode with you 2 as the guest. And I think that was a pretty big inflection point because it, I think it showed to Someone, anybody who might have been paying attention, that that this little podcast that I was making out of my garage, you know, um, and just recording and editing myself, had the capacity to um, be a container for arguably the biggest band in the world, and it still and it and it made sense. And I remember uh, talking to The Edge for for his part of the the episode, and he was like, "Oh, I really enjoyed the episode you did with the National." it's like wow that you you heard it you heard it before this you know so that it felt extremely validating to me but it also i think offered some kind of concrete validation for other people on the on the outside to say okay this is you know it had the veneer at least <laughs> of being a real show it, nobody was looking in nobody was coming to my studio and seeing like oh i see on the other half of that is your <laughs> is where you store your bike <laughs> but, <laughs> but <laughs> But from the outside, this looks like it could be
0: a a real grown-up venture. How did the Netflix series come to be? Was that an effort on your part, or did that uh, come to you? It was kind of a mix of the two. In 2016,
1: I started getting some emails from a few different places saying, hey, have you ever thought about adapting your podcast into a video format? And my first thought was, no I haven't and I don't think that this is of interest to me you know like the show is about audio and I feel like I know how to do it and I like not having other people that I have to rely on you know that it is very DIY so um no but I would get an email like that sort of once every three or four weeks it felt like in in the summer of 2016 leading into the fall and then I got an email I remember from from an agent who said oh we represent this director who's Making a show, we just found out about Song Exploder, and the concept is similar to the show that we're making. And would you want to come and you know be a consultant for us? And I got a little nervous about the idea that like this thing that I would poured years into was going to be um, sort of ripped off in some kind of way by somebody else <laughs> if I didn't do it my- myself. So it kind of, it kind of felt like a defensive instinct, I think, to say, well, instead of Saying no to all all of these emails, and then just waiting for somebody else to do their TV version of what I've been trying to do. What would a TV show version of Song Splitter be like? And so then I went back to one of the people who had emailed me, and I said, "All right, you know, let's talk." And we talked, and it wasn't the right fit. And then another company came around and said, "Would you want to do something?" And I was like, "Okay, let's talk." And we talked, and it wasn't the right fit. And at the same time, I was making the music for a friend of mine, his TV show for Netflix. He gave me some advice, which was, what if you were to just imagine what this show could be like from scratch? I think one of my strengths and also I think one of my weaknesses is that I think about what is possible within like what's in my grasp, like within the context of what feels pragmatically achievable. And so as, as these different companies were talking to me and we'd kick around ideas. I was kind of working within a sense of like, how do I make this TV show the way that I make the podcast? And it just didn't feel that appealing. It didn't feel exciting enough. It didn't feel big enough. It didn't feel like rich enough to warrant a, a change in format. And then he said, you know, he's like, we're working with Netflix. You're doing the music for this show. I mean, this thing, you know, if it were with someone like Netflix, you could potentially make it on a scale that's outside of your garage. What would that be like he's like just take just take some time and think about that and so i did and so for the first time then instead of kind of reacting to someone else's uh, ideas or or like a pitch that felt like they didn't quite get what i was trying to do i said okay let me figure out what that would be and i wrote this you know long document and by the end of it i got really excited and i was like actually i think this could be really fun it would be a some totally new Muscle that I would be exercising, and I think this could be cool. And then I thought about, well, who would I want to make this show with? Again, instead of thinking about like who is coming to me, because you know when the email arrives in your inbox, it is it feels like eminently achievable because you are like, okay, yeah, here they are. They say they want to work with to me. Say, How yes. exciting! Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's a much more burdensome idea to say, oh okay, yeah, I'm going to go out there and look for somebody. You know, the last time I'd done that was with Song Exploder, when I said, Hey, I went around, you know, and said, This is my idea. Do you want to make it with me? And I got nine months of no's and it was really frustrating. So I, I was a little bit wary of going down that path again. But one of the people that I had in mind when I sort of made made up my initial list of like dream collaborators was Morgan Neville. And and it was kind of achievable in that I knew someone who was his editor who worked with him. And so I just called him up and and I said, this is what's going on. I've been working on this TV show idea. I feel like Morgan, who is you know, an Oscar winner and who has done a lot of music stuff, and he's, he had done this show called Abstract that was about design. And he had done this one episode that was really a fascinating look into someone's creative process. So, and that felt to me like the most similar thing I'd ever seen to Song Exploder. It was not about music, it was about an illustrator. And I thought, I feel like he gets it, you know? And so I, I asked my friend, Jason Zeldis, you know, what do you think about this? And he said, you know, I know he listens to the podcast. We've talked about it before. Um, So I think he would be interested in talking to you. So it was kind of in the middle ground between like something that felt achievable and something that I had to go kind of be brave and hunt for because it was just, I just had to call somebody first and and he could tell me no you know gently <laughs> but that was a saturday and then that monday i met with morgan and by the end of that conversation we were like okay let's try and do this and then we pitched it to netflix together he had said that that a few different people he'd been making features for a long time and he'd been making tv shows as well and he said that he'd been having t- talks with people about like wanting to make a show what was his next thing going to be and he's like i think this
0: could be it so cool. And do you think by taking that driving, like that driver's seat position, do you think that gave you more control in the ultimate product that went to air? I don't know how much control I had in general. I, I mean,
1: I definitely got to exert some level of control as the, as the sort of creator of the podcast and as the host of the show and the executive producer, but I don't know that it actually gave me real control in terms of the amount of power I wielded with the other decision makers. But what it really did for me was it gave me something to always refer to in a concrete way about like what my vision for the show was going to be. So I could say, okay, if I have to choose between A or B, you know, the, the options are A or B. Well, let me think about what, the show is in my own mind and then choose the one that feels most right and if i hadn't done that if i'd kind of just wandered forward without that kind of solid foundation i think i could have easily chosen a path more arbitrarily or i would only learn what i needed to learn halfway down the path and it might have been like oh yeah actually the answer was i should have gone the other way and there was plenty of that anyway there's plenty of you know wrong decisions that were made and miscalculations and reconceptualization. But I think stepping to that driver's seat, as you say, in that moment, it just really helped me,
0: I guess, coalesce what my ideas were for the show. So now you're making music again under your own name this time. So mm-hmm. what's next for you and how are you thinking about, you know, the the projects you're taking on moving forward? So the first, yeah, the first
1: song that I've Put out under my own name. That's the first song that I've put out since that album came out in 2011. That came out recently, and then another song coming out in January. That's going to lead to an EP that'll come out in the spring, and I'm excited about it. I, I, I'm really excited about the idea of being able to get back to a place where I was um, when I first started Song Exploder, which was which is being able to like make room for both music and the sort of day job. There was a while where the day job ended up completely eclipsing my own life as a musician. I completely got away from making music, not because I didn't want to, but that kind of place that I was in when I was starting the show where I was like, I don't know what's happening. I, you know, I felt a little bit lost musically after having, after 10 years of trying to push that rock up that hill and feeling like, okay, it's not really getting any easier. I was feeling a little lost and I needed something to sort of shake things up and, but then what ended up happening was like the thing that I did to shake things up shook things up so much that I, I I I completely lost any sense of how to get back to making music again and now I feel like okay I'm you know I'm setting aside some time to specifically work on music it's made a really big difference in in how I feel about the balance
0: of things in my life do you feel like all of these conversations you've had with musicians is informing this music in a way that feels different than it did 10 years ago? Yeah, I don't think that I would be making, I don't know that I would be making music
1: at all if I hadn't been working on Song Exploder this whole time, which is a strange thing to realize because for a long time it felt like making Song Exploder, like the time commitment of it, and also some of just like my feelings around it kind of kept me from making music for a long time. I think it's hard to talk to people who are extremely successful in a field that you also want to be successful in, but who are so, so far ahead of you, it had an indirect effect on me of kind of squashing my feelings about making my making music again, because I was like, well, who cares? Like, this is, you know, you too, <laughs> or whoever. You know, like any number of the people who have been on the show made me feel like, well. Nobody's going to care about what I do in this other context, the way that they care about this. Like, you know, I would never book myself on, on the show. Like, it just, I'm not at that level. And is there a place for me to make work if it's not huge? It was like a pretty big existential question that was, um, that was going on for me. And it kept me from being able to write. Like it basically furthered my writer's block for a long time. And it was an easy thing to justify because I was like, well, I don't have time to make songs because, well, I've got to put out another episode. So for a long time, it felt like there was just no way for me to make music again. But I don't think that I would have gotten back to making music if it weren't for the fact that I talked to so many musicians about their process. And, And a big thing that people talked to me about that was kind of new for me was how collaborative they were in terms of their relationships with, like, outside producers or other songwriters. And then I had an opportunity to write with somebody else for the first time, and that completely opened up that world to me in a, in a tangible way. And so that's kind of how I've, how I've been able to
0: get back to it. I love that. You know, one of the reasons that I love listening to your show is these are big names. They've achieved quite a bit. But the way that they approach talking about their music Feels so accessible. It doesn't feel like some sort of black magic that they have and I will never have. It feels like something they care about and they invest a lot of energy into and they trust themselves and it's messy. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes they have no expectations and things exceed their expectations. Sometimes they have expectations and things don't perform, but it just feels like very human and relatable, whether you do music or not. And so it inspires me to keep making things. And I'm glad that it's gotten you back into it too. Oh, that's awesome. That is definitely at some unwritten level what I'm
1: hoping for with every episode. I mean, at one level, I'm just trying to tell the story as as well as it can be told. But on another level, I want it to feel just like what you're describing. You know, I kind of in the editing of the of the stories, I kind of over-index towards the messiness and the moments of kind of fallibility and things where there were mistakes because you know I think there's a way of telling those stories where it's a little more smoothed over and a little more of like a path from the starting place to the finish line but one it's more honest to be able to hear all the messy parts but I think also I love to focus on those things because you know that in the end they did get somewhere they did get to the finish line otherwise there wouldn't be an episode so let's why not like spend some time talking about what the problems were Because everybody has to face problems, you know, and if you get to hear somebody saying like, oh yeah, we screwed this thing up and this thing went wrong um, and we didn't know what to do here, then when when you have those issues yourself, then you're like, oh yeah, I remember they got through it.
0: Just last week, Rishi Rishikesh released Home, his second song under his own name. He wrote on Instagram that Home is about the places he shared his life with, with his wife Lindsay. And the good times and hard times that slowly filled those rooms. So now here's "Home" featuring J. in its entirety.
2: Last time through the.
0: This episode was a lot of fun to record and put together. I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you want to learn more about Rishi Kesh, you can visit his website at rishikeish.co or find him on Instagram at RishiHearway. You can subscribe to Song Exploder right here in your favorite podcast player or watch the television series on Netflix. Links to all of those are in the show notes. Thanks to Rishi Kesh for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Toddhunter for mixing the show and Ryan Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.
1: The Podglamour. A Sonic Universe.